It's Friday, and it's 6 o'clock, and it's time for the Nonstop Audio Pod podcast with your host, Kevin. The Famous Five Five Have a Wonderful Time by Enid Blyton Read by Jan Francis Chapter One George is All Alone I do think it's mean, said George fiercely. Why can't I go when the others do? I've had two weeks at home and haven't seen the others since school broke up. And now they're off for a wonderful fortnight, and I'm not with them. Don't be silly, George, said her mother. You can go as soon as that cold of yours is better. It's better now, said George, scowling. Mother, you know it is. That's enough, Georgina, said her father, looking up from his newspaper. This is the third breakfast time we've had this argument. Be quiet. George would never answer anyone when she was called Georgina. So, much as she would have liked to say something back, she pursed up her mouth and looked away. Her mother laughed. Oh, George, dear, don't look so terribly fierce. It was your own fault you got this cold. You would go and bathe and stay in far too long. And after all, it's only the third week in April. I always bathe in April said George sulkily. I said be quiet, said her father, banging down his paper on the table. One more word from you, George, and you won't go to your three cousins at all. Woof, said Timmy from under the table. He didn't like it when anyone spoke angrily to George. And don't you start arguing with me either, said George's father, poking Timmy with his toe and scowling exactly like George. His wife laughed again. Oh, be quiet, the two of you, she said. George, be patient, dear. I'll let you go off to your cousins as soon as ever I can. Tomorrow, if you're good, and don't cough much today. Oh, mother, why didn't you say so before, said George, her skull disappearing like magic. I didn't cough once in the night. I'm perfectly all right today. Oh, if I can go off to Faynite's Castle tomorrow, I promise I won't cough once today. What's this about Faynite's Castle? demanded her father, looking up again. First I've heard of it. Oh, no, Quentin, dear. I've told you at least three times, said his wife. Julie and Dick and Anne have been lent two funny old caravans by a school friend. They're in a field near Faynite's Castle. Oh. So they're not staying in a castle, then, said George's father. Can't have that. I won't have George coming home all high and mighty. George couldn't possibly be high and mighty, said his wife. It's as much as I can do to get her to keep her nails clean and wear clean jeans. Do be sensible, Quentin. You know perfectly well that George and her cousins always like to go off on extraordinary holidays together. 
and have adventures, grinned George, who was now in a very good temper indeed at the thought of going to join her cousins the next day. No, you're not to have any of those awful adventures this time, said her mother. Anyway, I don't see how you can, staying in a peaceful place like the village of Knight's Castle, living in a couple of old caravans. I wouldn't trust George anywhere, said her husband. Give her just a sniff of an adventure and she's after it. I never knew anyone like George. Thank goodness we've only got one child. I don't feel as if I could cope with two or three Georges. There are plenty of people like George, said his wife. Julian and Dick, for instance. Always in the middle of something or other, with Anne tagging behind, longing for a peaceful life. Well, I've had enough of this argument, said George's father, pushing his chair out vigorously and accidentally kicking Timmy under the table. He yelped. That dog's got no brains, said the impatient man. Lies under the table at every meal and expects me to remember he's there. Well, I'm going to do some work. He went out of the room. The dining room door banged. Then the study door banged. Then a window was shut with a bang. A fire was poked very vigorously. There was the creak of an armchair as someone sat down in it heavily. Then there was silence. Now your father's lost to the world till lunchtime, said George's mother. Dear, oh dear, I've told him at least three times about Knight's Castle, where your cousins are staying, bless him. Now, George, I do really think you can go tomorrow, dear. You look so much better today. You can get your things ready, and I'll pack them this afternoon. Thank you, mother, said George, giving her a sudden hug. Anyway... Father will be glad to have me out of the house for a bit. I'm too noisy for him. You're a pair, said her mother, remembering the slammed doors and other things. You're both a perfect nuisance at times, but I couldn't bear to do without you. Oh, Timmy, are you still under the table? I wish you wouldn't leave your tail about so. Did I hurt you? Oh, he doesn't mind you treading on it, mother, said George generously. I'm going to get my things ready this very minute. How do I get to Knight's Castle? By train? Yes, I'll take you to Kirin Station, and you can catch the 10.40, said her mother. You change at Limming Hole and take the train that goes to Knight's. If you send a card to Julian, he'll get it tomorrow morning and we'll meet you. I'll write it now, said George happily. Oh, mother... I began to be afraid this awful cold would hang on all through the holidays. I shan't bathe again on such a cold day in April. You said that last year, and the year before that, too, said her mother. You have a very short memory, George. Come on, Timmy, said George, and the two of them went out of the door like a whirlwind. It slammed behind them, and the house shook. At once, the study door opened and an angry voice yelled loudly, Who's that slamming doors when I'm at work? Can't anybody in this house shut a door quietly? George grinned as she fled upstairs. The biggest slammer of doors was her father, but he only heard the slams made by other people. George turned her writing case inside out to find a postcard. 
She must post it at once, or Julian wouldn't get it. And it would be so nice to have all her three cousins meeting her. We're off tomorrow, she told Timmy, who looked up at her and wagged his tail vigorously. Yes, you're coming too, of course. Then the five will be all together again. The famous five. You'll like that, won't you, Tim? So shall I. She scribbled the postcard and flew down to post it. Slam went the front door, and her father almost jumped out of his skin. He was a very clever and hard-working scientist. Impatient, hot-tempered, kindly and very forgetful. How he wished his daughter was not so exactly like him, but was like his quiet, gentle little niece, Anne. George posted the card. It was short and to the point. Cold gone, coming tomorrow. Arriving 12.05, so make sure you all meet me and Timmy. Our tails are well up, I can tell you. George. George turned out her drawers and began to pick out the things she wanted to take with her. Her mother came to help. There was always an argument about packing, because George wanted to take as little as possible and no warm things at all, and her mother had exactly opposite ideas. However, between the two of them, they managed to pack the suitcase full of quite sensible things. George refused, as usual, to take a dress of any sort. I wonder when you'll grow out of wanting to be a boy and of acting like one, said her mother, exasperated. All right, all right, take those awful old jeans if you want to, and that red jersey. But you are to pack those warm vests. I put them in once and you took them out. And you must take a warm rug, Julian says. The caravans are not very warm in this weather. I wonder what they're like said George, stuffing the vests in. They're funny, old-fashioned ones, Julian said in his letter. Perhaps they're like the ones the travellers have, not the modern, streamlined ones that are pulled along by cars. <laughs> You'll see tomorrow, said her mother. Oh, George, you're coughing again. <coughs> it's just the dust, that's all, said George, going purple in the face, trying to hold back the tickle in her throat. She drank a glass of water in a hurry. It would be too dreadful if her mother said she wasn't to go after all. However, her mother really did think that George was better. She had been in bed for a week, making a terrible fuss and being a very difficult patient. Now, after being up for a few days, she really seemed herself again. It will do her good to get down to Fay Nights, and it's good strong air thought her mother. She needs company again, too. She doesn't like having to be all alone, knowing the others are holidaying without her. George felt happy that evening. Only one more night, and she would be off to a fortnight's caravanning. If only the weather was good, what a fine time they would have. Suddenly, the telephone shrilled out. Ring! Ring! George's mother went to answer it. Hello, she said. Oh, it's you, Julian. Is everything all right? George sped out into the hall at once. Oh, surely, surely nothing had happened. Surely Julian wasn't ringing to tell her not to come. 
She listened breathlessly. What's that you say, Julian? I can't make out what you're talking about, dear. Yes, of course your uncle is all right. Why shouldn't he be? No, he hasn't disappeared. Julian, what are you talking about? George listened impatiently. What was all this? But it turned out to be something quite ordinary, really. When at last her mother put down the receiver, she told George, Don't hop about like that, George. It's quite all right. You can go tomorrow. Julian was only ringing up to make sure that your father wasn't one of the scientists who have suddenly disappeared. Apparently, in tonight's paper, there is a short report about two that have completely vanished, and dear old Julian wanted to make sure your father was here safely. As if father would vanish, said George scornfully. Julian must be mad. It's just two more of those silly scientists who are disloyal to this country and disappear to another country to sell our secrets. I could have told Julian that. Chapter 2. All Together Again Next morning, on a dewy hillside, a good distance from Kirin, where George lived, two boys leapt down the steps of a caravan and went to one nearby. They rapped on the door. Anne, are you awake? It's a heavenly day. Of course I'm awake, cried a voice. The door's unlocked. Come in, I'm getting breakfast. Julian and Dick pushed open the blue-painted door. Anne was standing at a little stove at one end of her caravan, boiling eggs in a saucepan. I can't look round, she said. I'm timing them by my watch. One minute more to go. The postman has just brought a card from George, said Julian. She says her tail and Timmy's are both well up. I'm glad she's coming at last, and old Timmy too. We'll all go and meet her, said Anne, still with her eyes on her watch. Twenty seconds more. We only came here ourselves three days ago, said Dick, so she hasn't really missed much. Surely those eggs will be hard-boiled, Anne. Anne stopped looking at her watch. No, they won't. They'll be just right. She scooped them out of the little saucepan with a big spoon. Put them in the egg cups, Dick. There they are, just under your nose. Dick picked an egg up from the plate on which Anne had placed them. It was so hot that he dropped it with a yell, and it broke its shell. Yolk flowed out of it. Dick, you saw me take it out of boiling water, said Anne. Now I've got to do another. Hmm, it's a pity old Timmy isn't here. He'd soon have licked that broken egg up from the floor and saved me clearing up the mess. We'll eat our breakfast, sitting on the steps of your caravan, Anne, said Julian. The sun's so lovely. So they all sat there, eating boiled eggs, well-buttered bread, with chunky homemade marmalade afterwards, and then juicy apples. The sun shone down, and Julian took off his coat. Their two caravans were set on a sloping grassy hillside. A tall hedge grew behind and kept off the wind. Primroses ran in a pale gold streak under the hedge, and brilliant celandines shone in the sun, turning their polished faces towards it. 
Not far off were three more caravans, but they were modern ones. The people staying in those were not yet up, and the doors were fast shut. The three children had had no chance of making friends with them. On the opposite hill rose an old ruined castle, whose great walls still defied the gales that sometimes blew over the hills. It had four towers. Three were very much broken, but the fourth looked almost complete. The windows were slit holes, made centuries back when archers shot their arrows from them. A very steep pathway led up to the castle. At the top of it was a gateway, enormously strong, built of big white blocks of stone. The gateway was now filled by a great screen of wrought iron to prevent anyone entering, and the only entrance was by a small tower in which was a narrow door. Here there was a turnstile through which visitors might go to see the old castle. A high, strong wall ran all round the castle, still standing after so many years. Bits of the top of it had fallen down the hill and lay half buried in grass and weeds. It had once been a magnificent old castle, built on the high, steep hill for safety, a place from which the castle guards might see the country easily for miles around. As Julian said, anyone up in one of the towers or even on the wall, would be able to see enemies approaching from seven counties. There would be plenty of time to shut the great gate, man the walls, and get ready to withstand quite a long siege if necessary. The three of them sat on the steps, lazing in the sun, when they had finished their breakfast. They looked at the ruined old castle and watched the jackdaws circling round the four towers. There must be about a thousand jackdaws there, said Dick. I wish we had field glasses so that we could watch them. It would be as good as a circus. I love the way they all fly up together and circle round and round and yet never bump into one another. Do they nest in that old castle? asked Anne. Oh, yes. They fill up the towers with big sticks, said Dick, and put their nests on the top. I bet we'd find the ground beneath the towers strewn ankle-deep in sticks if we went to sea. Well, let's go one day when George is here, said Anne. It only costs five pence to go in. I like old castles. I like the feel of old places. So do I, said Julian. I hope George brings the field glasses she had for her birthday. We could take them up into the castle with us and see all round the countryside for miles and miles. <laughs> we could count the seven counties. I must wash up, said Anne, getting up. I must tidy the caravans too before George comes. You don't really think old George will notice if they're tidy or not, do you? said Dick. It will be a waste of your time, Anne. But Anne always enjoyed tidying things and putting them away in cupboards or on shelves. She liked having the two caravans to look after. She had just got used to them nicely and was looking forward to showing George round them. She skipped over to the hedge and picked a great bunch of primroses. Back she went and divided them into two. She stuffed half into one little blue bowl, set their green crinkled leaves round them 
and then put the other half into a second bowl. There, you go with the green and yellow curtains, she said. She was soon very busy sweeping and dusting. She debated whether to send Dick to the stream to wash the breakfast things and decided not to. Dick wasn't too good with crockery and it was not theirs to break. It belonged to the owner of the caravans. By the time it was half past eleven, the caravans were spick and span. George's sheets and blankets were on the shelf above her bunk, which, in the daytime, let down neatly against the wall to make more room. Anne had a bunk on the opposite side. This is the kind of holiday I like, said Anne to herself. Somewhere small to live, fields and hills just outside, picnicky meals and not too much adventure. What are you murmuring about, Anne? said Dick, peeping in at the window. Did I hear something about adventure? Are you looking for one already? Good gracious, no, said Anne. It's the last thing I want. And the last thing we'll get, too, in this quiet little place, thank goodness. Dick grinned. Well, you never know, he said. Are you ready to come and meet George, Anne? It's about time we went. Anne went down the steps and joined Dick and Julian. Better lock the door, said Dick. We've locked ours. He locked Anne's door and the three set off down the grassy hillside to the stile that led into the lane below. The old castle on the opposite hill seemed to tower up higher and higher as they went down towards the village. It will be lovely to see Timmy again, said Anne. And I'll be jolly glad to have George too in my caravan. I didn't really mind being alone at night, but it's always nice to have George near me and Timmy grunting in his sleep. You want to sleep with Dick if you like grunts and snorts and moans, said Julian. What do you dream about, Dick? You must have more nightmares than anyone else in the kingdom. I never grunt or snort or moan, said Dick indignantly. You want to hear yourself. Why, look, isn't that the train coming in? Isn't that it, curving round the line in the distance, said Anne. It must be. There's only one train in the morning here. We'd better run. They ran at top speed. The train drew in at the station just as they raced onto the platform. A head of short curly hair looked out from a window and then another brown head just below it. George! And Timmy! yelled Anne. Hello! shouted George, almost falling out of the door. Woof! barked Timmy and leapt down to the platform, almost on top of Dick. Down jumped George, her eyes shining. She hugged Anne and gave Julian and Dick a punch each. I'm here, she said. I felt awful knowing you were away camping without me. I gave poor old mother a dreadful time. I bet you did, said Julian, and linked his arm in hers. Let me take that suitcase. We'll just slip into the village first and have a few ice creams to celebrate. There's a shop here that has some jolly decent ones. Good. I feel exactly like ice creams, said George happily. Look, Timmy knows what you said. His tongue is hanging out for an ice cream already. Timmy? 
Aren't you pleased we're all together again? Woof, said Timmy, and licked Anne's hand for the twentieth time. I really ought to bring a towel with me when I meet Timmy, said Anne. His licks are so very wet. Oh, no, not again, Timmy. Go and use your tongue on Julian. I say, look, George has brought her field glasses with her, said Dick, suddenly noticing that the brown strap over George's shoulder did not belong to a camera, but to a very fine leather case that held the new field glasses. Good. We wanted to watch the jackdaws with them. And there are some herons down on the marsh, too. Well, I thought I must bring them, said George. It's the first holes I've had a chance to use them. Mother wouldn't let me take them to school. I say, how much further is this ice cream shop? In the dairy here, said Julian, marching her in. And I advise you to start off with vanilla, go on to strawberry and finish up with chocolate. You do have good ideas, said George. I hope you've got some money as well, if we're going to eat ice creams at this rate. Mother didn't give me very much to spend. They sat down and ordered ice creams. The plump little shopwoman smiled at them. She knew them by now. This is very good weather for you, she said. Are there many caravanners up on Knight's Field? No, not many, said Julian, beginning his ice. Well... You're going to have a few more, said the little plump lady. I hear there's some fair folk coming. They usually camp up in your field. You'll have some fun if so. Oh, good, said Dick. We'll really be able to make a few friends then. We like fair folk, don't we, Timmy? Chapter 3 A Pleasant Morning is there going to be a fair near here, then? asked George, starting on her strawberry ice. What sort of a fair? A circus or something? No, just a mixed-up show, said the shopwoman. There's to be a fire-eater, <laughs> and that'll bring the villagers to the show faster than anything. A fire-eater? Did you ever hear of such a thing? I wonder that anyone cares to make a living at that. What else is there to be? asked Anne. She didn't somehow fancy watching anyone eating fire. Well, there's a man who can get himself free in under two minutes, no matter how tightly he's tied up with rope, said the woman. Fair miracle he must be. And there's a man called Mr. India Rubber, because he can bend himself anywhere and wriggle through drain pipes and get in at a window if it's left open just a crack. Gracious! He'd make a good burglar, said George. I wish I was like India Rubber. Can this man bounce when he falls down? Everyone laughed. What else? said Anne. This sounds very exciting. There's a man with snakes, said the plump little lady with a shudder. Snakes? Just fancy. I'd be afraid they would bite me. I'd run a mile if I saw a snake coming at me. Are they poisonous snakes that he has, I wonder? said Dick. I don't somehow fancy having a caravan next to ours with lashings of poisonous snakes crawling round. Don't! said Anne. I should go home at once. 
Another customer came in, and the shopwoman had to leave the children and go to serve her. The four felt rather thrilled. What a bit of luck to have such exciting people in the same field as they were. A fire-eater, said Dick. I've always wanted to see one. I bet he doesn't really eat fire. He'd burn the whole of his mouth and throat. Has everyone finished? asked Julian, getting some money out of his pocket. If so, we'll take George up to the field and show her our painted caravans. They aren't a bit like the ones we once went caravanning in, George. They are old-fashioned traveller's ones. You'll like them. Colourful and very picturesque. Who lent you them? asked George as they left the shop. Some school friend, wasn't it? Yes. He and his family always go and camp in their caravans in the Easter and summer holes, said Julian. But this Easter, they're going to France. And rather than leave them empty, they thought they'd lend them out. And we're the lucky ones. They walked up the lane and came to the stile. George looked up at the towering castle, gleaming in the sun on the hill opposite. Fainite's Castle, she said, hundreds of years old. How I'd love to know all the things that happened there through the centuries. I do love old things. I vote we go and explore it. We will. It only costs five pence, said Dick. We'll all have a good five pence worth of castle. I wonder if there are any dungeons. Dark, damp, drear and dreadful. They went up the grassy hillside to the field where their caravans were. George exclaimed in delight. Oh, are those our caravans? Aren't they lovely? They're just like the caravans the travellers use, only these look cleaner and brighter. The red caravan, picked out with black and yellow, is ours, said Dick. The blue one, picked out in black and yellow, is yours and Anne's. Woof! said Timmy at once. Oh, sorry, yours too, Timmy, said Dick at once, and everyone chuckled. It was funny the way Timmy suddenly made a woofish remark, just as if he really understood every word that was said. George was quite certain he did, of course. The caravans stood on high wheels. There was a window on each side. The door was at the front, and so were the steps, of course. Bright curtains hung at the windows, and a line of bold carving ran round the edges of the out-jutting roof. They are old traveller caravans, painted and made really up-to-date, said Julian. They're jolly comfortable inside, too. Bunks that fold down against the walls in the daytime. A little sink for washing up, though we usually use the stream, because it's such a bore to fetch water. A small larder, cupboards and shelves... Cork carpet on the floor with warm rugs so that no draught comes through. You sound as though you're trying to sell them to me, said George with a laugh. You needn't. I love them both, and I think they're miles nicer than the modern caravans down there. Somehow, these seem real. Oh, the others are real enough, said Julian, and they've got more space. But space doesn't matter to us because we shall live outside most of the time. Do we have a campfire? asked George eagerly. Oh, yes, I see we do. There's the ashy patch where you had your fire. 
Oh, Julian, do let's have a fire there at night and sit round it in the darkness. With midges biting us and bats flapping all round, said Dick. Yes, we certainly will. <laughs> come inside, George. She's to come into my caravan first, said Anne, and pushed George up the steps. George was really delighted. She was very happy to think she was going to have a peaceful two weeks here with her three cousins and Timmy. She pulled her bunk up and down to see how it worked. She opened the larder and cupboard doors. Then she went to see the boys' caravan. How tidy, she said in surprise. I expected Anne's to be tidy, but yours is just a spick and span. Oh dear, I hope you haven't all turned over a new leaf and become models of neatness. I haven't. Don't worry, said Dick with a grin. Anne has been at work. You know how she loves to put everything in its place. We don't need to worry about anything when she's about. Good old Anne. All the same, George will have to help, said Anne firmly. We've all got to tidy up and cook and do things like that. George groaned. All right, Anne, I'll do my share. Sometimes. I say, there won't be much room for Timmy on my bunk at nights, will there? Well, he's not coming on mine, said Anne. He can sleep on the floor on a rug, can't you, Timmy? Woof, said Timmy, without wagging his tail at all. He looked very disapproving. There you are. He says he wouldn't dream of doing such a thing, said George. He always sleeps on my feet. They went outside again. It really was a lovely day. The primroses opened more and more of their little yellow flowers, and a blackbird suddenly burst into a fluting song on the bough of a hawthorn tree in the hedge nearby. Did anyone get a paper in the village? asked Dick. Oh, you did, Julian. Good. Let's have a look at the weather forecast. If it's good, we might go for a long walk this afternoon. The sea is not really very far off. Julian took the folded paper from his pocket and threw it over to Dick. He sat down on the steps of the caravan and opened it. He was looking for the paragraph giving the weather forecast when headlines caught his eye. He gave an exclamation. Hello! There's a bit more about those two vanished scientists, Julian. Oh, said George, remembering Julian's telephone call of the night before. Julian, whatever in the world made you think my father could be one of the vanished scientists? As if he would ever be disloyal to his country and take his secrets anywhere else. Oh, I didn't think that, said Julian at once. Of course I didn't. I'd never think Uncle Quentin would do a thing like that. No, in yesterday's paper, it just said that two of our most famous scientists had disappeared. And I thought perhaps they'd been kidnapped. And as Uncle Quentin is really very famous, I just thought I'd ring up to make sure. Oh, said George. Well, as Mother hadn't heard a thing about them, she was awfully astonished when you asked her if Father had disappeared especially as he was banging about just then in the study, looking for something he had lost. Which he was sitting on, as usual, I suppose, said Dick with a grin. But listen to this. It doesn't look as if the two men have been kidnapped. 
It looks as if they just walked out and took important papers with them. Beasts! There's too much of that sort of thing nowadays, it seems to me. He read out a paragraph or two. Derek Terry Kane and Geoffrey Pottersham have been missing for two days. They met at a friend's house to discuss a certain aspect of their work and then left together to walk to the underground. Since then, they have not been seen. It has, however, been established that Terry Kane had brought his passport up to date and had purchased tickets for flying to Paris. No news of his arrival there has been reported. There! Just what I said to Mother! exclaimed George. They've gone off to sell their secrets to another country. Why do we let them? Uncle Quentin won't be pleased about that, said Julian. Didn't he work with Terry Kane at one time? Yes, I believe he did, said George. I'm jolly glad I'm not at home today. Father will be rampaging round like anything, telling Mother hundreds of times what he thinks about scientists who are traitors. He certainly will, said Julian. I don't blame him either. That's a thing I don't understand, to be a traitor to one's own country. It leaves a nasty taste in my mouth to think of it. Come on, let's think about dinner, Anne. What are we going to have? Fried sausages and onions, potatoes, a tin of sliced peaches, and I'll make a custard, said Anne at once. I'll fry the sausages, said Dick. I'll light the fire out here and get the frying pan. Anyone like their sausages split in the cooking? Everyone did. I like mine nice and burnt, said George. How many do we have each? I've only had those ice creams since breakfast. There are twelve, said Anne, giving Dick the bag. Three each. None for Timmy. But I've got a large juicy bone for him. Julian, will you get me some water, please? There's the pail over there. I want to peel the potatoes. George, can you possibly open the peaches without cutting yourself like you did last time? Yes, Captain, said George with a grin. Ah, this is like old times. Good food, good company and a good time. Three cheers for us. Chapter 4 the fair folk arrive. That first day they were all together was a lovely one. They enjoyed it thoroughly, especially George, who had fretted all by herself for two weeks at home. Timmy was very happy too. He tore after rabbits, most of them quite imaginary, up and down the field and in and out of the hedges till he was tired out. Then, he would come and fling himself down by the fore, panting like a steam engine going uphill, his long pink tongue hanging out of his mouth. You make me feel hot just to look at you, Timmy, said Anne, pushing him away. Look, George, he's so hot, he's steaming. One of these days, Timmy, you'll blow up. They went for a walk in the afternoon, but didn't quite get to the sea. They saw it from a hill, sparkling blue in the distance. Little white yachts dotted the blue water, like far-off swans with wings outspread. They had tea at a farmhouse, watched by a couple of big-eyed farm children. 
Do you want to take some of my homemade jam with you? asked the farmer's jolly red-faced wife when they paid her for their tea. Oh, yes, rather, said Dick. And I suppose you couldn't sell us some of that fruitcake. We're camping in caravans in Faynite's Field, just opposite the castle, so we're having picnic meals each day. Yes, you can have a whole cake, said the farmer's wife. I did my baking yesterday, so there's plenty. And would you like some ham? I've some good pickled onions, too. This was wonderful. They bought all the food very cheaply indeed and carried it home gladly. Dick took off the lid of the pickled onions halfway back to the caravans and sniffed. Better than any scent, he said. Have a sniff, George. It didn't stop at sniffs, of course. Everyone took out a large pickled onion, except Timmy, who backed away at once. Onions were the one thing he really couldn't bear. Dick put back the lid. I think somebody else ought to carry the onions, not Dick, said Anne. There won't be many left by the time we reach our caravans. <laughs>